Hey again. I did announcements and this. Uh, normally don't do that, but I'm back. And I've got a sermon for you, all right? So uh, open up a Bible, Matthew 25. Um, if you're here for the first time, you'll, you'll figure this out. We're, we're weird. We're weird here. Uh, we, we've got like a bunch of friends who are like leaving America to like move to Japan, not because they have like career opportunities, because they want to go share the gospel there. You'll, you'll figure that out. Like that's weird. Um, we believe that like at the end of time, there's going to be this dude who was crucified and rose from the grave, who like the whole universe like orients around him. Like that's weird. We believe that. Um, and the reason we believe all that stuff is because we believe that Jesus was God in the flesh, that he's like the, the God, like the transcendent divine being behind everything. Like he actually became a human being and like stood and like walked and talked with people and he taught us about ultimate reality. Like we, we believe that's true. Because we believe the Bible is true, is from God. And so what we do basically every week at Salt Company, if, if you're new, is we basically just open up the Bible and we say, man, like, Jesus, would you teach us about life? We want to, like, come under this book and be taught by you and learn from you about God. And so we're in this story tonight that teaches us about the kingdom of heaven. We've been doing this series on parables. We kind of took a break last week. Jordan, who did the retreat, was here. And we were kind of talking about how to live in the kingdom. We're back to just Jesus giving us these stories of the kingdom. And in Matthew 24, this is the chapter before 25 where we're at, it, Jesus is um, talking with his disciples. And one of the things Jesus talks about a ton is like the end, right? Because it's like the kingdom of God is this thing that you can kind of start to live your life in this place, like kind of one foot in now. You can start to actually live like you're in the kingdom of God now. But the kingdom of God is something that's like coming. Like the, the end of time is going to come and, and the world's going to be changed. And Jesus talks about this all the time. And so in Matthew 24, his disciples come up to him, and they're like, Jesus, like, man, you got to help us with this. When is it going to happen? Like, when is the end going to come? You know, is that going to be in our lifetime? Is it later? And, and Matthew 24 is interesting. I don't know if you've ever read it before, but Jesus gives an answer, and it's pretty, like, apocalyptic and prophetic, and I think it's, like, even intentionally confusing. And when he gets to the very end of it, he's like, hey, listen, only God the Father knows the actual day and time when that day is going to take place. But that's not even the most important question, when. The most important question that you need to be asking is who. Like, who is going to be accepted by God on that day? And you need to be asking, like, not when, but am I ready? And it's really interesting, because the reason Jesus tells that is because he's, he's actually talking to his disciples. Like, his kind of closest of close. Like, the people who follow him around everywhere. These are like the churchgoers. He's like the church kids, right? They're, they're like front row, like, Jesus, here's a question, you know, like, they're like the good kids who are following Jesus around. And there's this assumption they have, the reason they ask him, when is the end going to come, is because their assumption is because of who they are, surely things are going to go well for them when that day comes. And so Jesus basically says, hey, hey, hold on, you should actually do some self-reflection, because it doesn't matter when, it matters if you're actually ready for that day. And so Jesus gives three stories in Matthew 25 that are basically given to us to help answer the question, am I ready for Jesus to come back? Am I ready for that day? And so what we're going to do is we're just going to look at just the central story, the middle story, and it starts in verse 14. This is what he says. Jesus is talking about the kingdom of heaven, and he says this, For it will be like a man going on a journey. And this man, he called his servants, and he entrusted to them his property. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, to each according to his ability, and then he went away. Now, a talent isn't like, it's like a, unit, it's like a, a measurement of money. It's like a, a lump sum of cash. It isn't like he gave this person the gift of ventriloquism or whatever. It's not a talent. It's like money. 
So he gave it to them, and then he went away. He who had received the five talents went at once and traded with them. He made five talents more. So also he who had two talents made two talents more. But he who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. Now after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. So just pause for a moment. We'll keep reading in a second. But I think that sometimes when we read the Bible, we can miss... Um, some of the things that are like most important because they're the most basic. And sometimes we just kind of miss with these things. We just kind of go over our heads, right? We read it and we're like, okay, I get that. We move on. But Jesus says that this story describes what the world is like. And what is the most kind of fundamental reality that everything about the story kind of flows from? It's that there is a master. Like, that's how the story starts. It starts by introducing him because he's the one the whole story's about. And, and sometimes it's the simplest and most basic truths in the Bible. I think because they're simple and basic, we don't consider them very much. And sometimes there's some of the things that we think we understand that we don't. But our world, this story that we are in, the most defining thing about it is that there is a master. There's someone who has authority, who's in charge of it. And this is actually how the story of the Bible starts as well. It's actually the very first truth. It's the most basic, basic truth about our reality. If you strip everything away, you get down to the very core, very center. The revelation about our world and our lives and our story is the very first line in Genesis. In the beginning, God. And so what this means at the very least, if you're here tonight and you're kind of new to Christian ideas, is the Bible is telling us, at the very least, we are not the main characters in this story. And it isn't just the story of the Bible, but what the Bible says that we are characters in this story. That this is our story. So it means that not only you're not the main character in this book, this book isn't about you, but it also means that your story is not about you either. We're not the ones who write the script of our own lives. And now some people, when, I, when we talk about God, there's kind of this idea, right? Like there's, God's like a vast concept, right? And some people are like, I don't know, there's a bunch of different spiritual books out there, there's a bunch of different ideas. I don't really know what to believe. I don't really know if there is a God. Maybe there is, maybe there isn't. But what some people will say is this. They go, I don't really know the answer to this question, but whether there is a God or isn't a God, I don't know. But if there is or isn't, it probably doesn't affect my life that much. At least it doesn't affect my day to day. Listen, that is the perspective of someone who has absolutely no idea what they're talking about at all. It's actually the perspective of someone who is moving so quickly through life they haven't even stopped for a moment to actually consider the question they're claiming to have some kind of answer to. The reason the story starts with the master and the reason the story starts in the, of, in the Bible with God is because his existence, his reality, is what determines every single other part of the story. And you actually see that in this, in this story right here, right? Because before we look at anything else, we should notice Jesus describes our lives, right? Because this is kind of an illustration of what life is like in a very different way than most of us view them. It's actually a very un-American idea. I want you to check this out. Jesus describes your personal property in this story like this. It isn't your personal property, <laughs> okay? That's how he describes it. Jesus says that this is a story of what the kingdom of God coming is going to be like, and it's going to be at the end of our lives. We're going to stand before a king, and it's going to be like a man who goes on a journey and entrusts his servants, meaning people, human beings, 
with his property. So just really quickly, it's like, hey, all your stuff, everything about you, whatever you have, it's not actually yours. It's on loan to you from your master, who is God. And the end of the story, it depends on what they did with the things that they were entrusted with. And I'm going to be really honest with you. This is a really terrifying answer to the question, are we ready for Jesus to come back, isn't it? <laughs> it's like, Jesus is like, uh, you should be worried if you're ready or not. And he's like, here's what it's going to be like. Every single thing about you and everything you own is on loan to you from God. And whether you use that as a good steward or not will determine your final destiny with him. You're like, woof. That's tough. That's a tough story. Especially if you're in, in the room and you're like, I don't even know if there's a God. Like, I, if I don't even know if there is a God, I'm certainly not living according to his rules and purposes, right? Like, this is a really scary story to read. It's serious. And what's so interesting about Jesus is like he doesn't hold back, he doesn't like pull punches. Like he doesn't like kind of soften sharp edges of this stuff. He just comes out and he's like, hey, this is actually the way the world is. Whether you want it to be this way or not. The things that you have, they don't actually belong to you, but they've been entrusted to you by your master. And there is an expectation on you that you will use those and you will actually maximize what you've been given for him and his purpose in the world. Let me ask you a question. Is this the way that you view your stuff? Like, is this the way you view your things? And it, like, you know, your money, your, is this the way you view your time? Because time is a commodity, right? What about your gifts? Like your, your actual like talents, you know? Or maybe just bigger scale. Like, is this the way you view your life? that you are a servant and there is a master and there's a day coming where the master will return and when he returns he's coming back to settle accounts with us will he find that you've been a good and faithful steward of what he's given you man like this is a really profound story and we're going to get into it and we're going to kind of we're going to kind of pull it apart and get some stuff but like if you get nothing else from this, like, that question should haunt you at night. Like, it it's meant to. It's terrifying. Because sometimes when we think about God, we're just like, okay, abstract, is there a God? Is there, like, a nice, you know, dad in the sky, maybe? And maybe he has a relationship with me, maybe he doesn't, it's hard to know. But there's this kind of outside there God, but he's like, well, let me just paint a picture for you. He's like a master who requires things of his servants. And it has expectations that we use these things. Like, that's a story that is supposed to, like, kind of shock us a bit and be like, oh, okay, I'm going to pay attention uh, because that's not the way I normally view my life. I don't wake up thinking about my stuff that way. And Jesus, just, Jesus means for it to be shocking, but let's continue reading, okay? It says, verse 15, says, he kind of explains this whole thing. He says, okay, to one he gave five talents, and to another two, and to each according to his ability. And then he went away. Now those who had received the five talents at once, they traded with them and made five talents more, right? So this person doubles up, right? Five and five. He's got 10 at the end. And those who had two talents, he did, made two talents more. So right, two and two, four. It's, it's great. He's doubling the investment. But he who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. Now after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. So this is the context of the story. Let's look what happens. Verse 19. Now, after a long time, okay, 
fair enough. Jesus has been gone for a while, okay? So like for a long time, it's like you should expect that. Like you actually, half of Jesus' stories are like, ah, actually, I'm going to be gone for a long enough amount of time that you're going to think I'm not coming back. And that's when I'm going to come back. So Jesus is like, after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. And he who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents. Here, I have made five talents more. And his master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a little, and I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And he also, who had two talents, came forward, saying, Master, you've delivered to me two talents. And here I have made two talents more. And his master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And then verse 24, He also who had received the one talent came forward, saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid. And I went and I hid your talent in the ground. Here, have what is yours. But the master answered him, you wicked and lazy servant. You knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I scattered no seed. Then you ought to have invested the money with the, the bankers. And then with my coming, I should at least have received what was mine with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to him who has ten talents. For to everyone who has will more be given and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness. In that place, there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. This is not a story with small ramifications, right? Like, and I think that people who were hearing this in Jesus' day, they kind of, they were probably shocked a little bit by it. Because, like, we want to hear Jesus tell nice stories, but sometimes he tells stories that are kind of scary. And the way, the way this ends is, like, it's a scary ending, right? Like, one of the, one of the groups of people get, like, welcomed into the joy of the master. Like, that is epic. That is incredible. Like, they're invited close. Like, come into my joy and be one with me. Join in with me. And then the other is like, hey, get this person out. Not just, like, take this away, but, like, cast them into the outer darkness. You could not have two more different endings to the story. And there's two types of servants, right? Two that are basically, we're told, they are good stewards of what the master has given them, and one that isn't. And the first stewards, right, the first servants, they, they take what the master gave them and they go out into the world and they make something of it, right? They double their master's investment in them. They take risks doing it, but it pays off in the end and their master returns and is pleased with them, welcomes into his joy. But the last servant, he, he buries what the master gave him, right? He doesn't take any financial risks with it. He doesn't take any risks at all. He doesn't make any investments. He just buries it. And Jesus says, that the reason he buries it is because he is scared that if he doesn't bury it, he might not be able to pay back the master what he was given. It's kind of interesting. You know, investments were actually really shaky in the ancient world, okay? So it wasn't just like our world is today. Like today, if you've got some money, you can at the very least throw it into like a bank account. And if, you know, you'll get like, I mean, you're going to totally get screwed. Inflation is going to like literally like make that money worth way less over time. But you're going to get like some investment back, okay? Like you shouldn't store your money in banks. You, you sh if you don't know that, you shouldn't do that. But anyway, even in this time, 
investments were like really shaky like investments like putting in a bank it's like you put money in a bank and it's like you didn't always get that money back it wasn't actually a sure thing to invest in that way and so what this guy does is he does the only thing you could do that would guarantee that he can pay his master back exactly what he's given and so he buries it it's the only way to guarantee he could pay him back so I just want, like, that's the, that's the story, right? It isn't just like he, God gave him something. He's like, I'm going to do nothing with this. Like, there's fear involved in him. He's like, I got I to gotta pay this back. So I'm going to do the only thing I know how to do to guarantee it. Well, what does it look like for us to bury the things God's given us? Like, what does that look like today? Well, I think there's many ways to do this. But one of the most obvious ways I think you can bury what God has given you is actually that you use the things God's given you for your purposes and your intentions instead of his. This would be burying your talent, right? I have a line written in my Bible next to this passage that actually just says, it's handwritten, my, my writing, what does your bank account tell you about your soul? Right? Because Jesus says where your treasure is, there your heart will be also, right? And so, but it isn't just about money, right? Money kind of gives a window into our heart, but it's also like some of you have great business minds. Some of you are, you are great with people. Some of you are actually tremendous artists or thinkers, and the question is, what are you doing with what you've been given? You know, you can waste what God's given you by spending it on yourself, but another way is you can simply do nothing with it at all. You can actually squander the things God's given you through laziness and insecurity and fear. And it isn't actually just that you waste them on yourself, but you just don't use them at all. Like, you've actually been given the kind of gifts and skill set to, like, fix the clean water crisis around the world. And instead of doing that, you just play a lot of video games. Or, like, maybe God gave you this gift to be able to, you could, like, cure cancer if you put yourself to it. And instead, you settle to work at Quick Trip and drink a lot of alcohol. And it's not a slight people to work at Quick Trip. It's a great gas station, Okay. But the issue, right, it isn't like how much of an impact you make on the world, right? The issue is whether you've been faithful with what God gave you. That's the issue. It isn't that one servant brought ten talents to Jesus and the other one only had one in the end. The issue is that two people were faithful and they were zealous for the things of God. And the other wasn't. Two of the servants have zeal and passion. And the third doesn't care about those things at all. You'll notice the one thing he cares about is not doing anything wrong. He doesn't want to cross the master. He doesn't want to not live up to what he thinks the standard is. And it isn't just that he's lazy, but notice his laziness is calculated. It's calculated. What does this servant look like today? Well, when it comes to finances, I think that this servant looks like someone who goes into the Bible and tries to figure out the exact number that God wants them to like tithe or give back to the church. And they might come away with like, okay, 10%. That's like an Old Testament thing. Maybe I'll do that today. And, and so they come to this conclusion that 10% is like the amount of money that God wants them to give to the church. And they give 10% and never a dime more. And you kind of concluded to yourself that this is what God requires of you. And this is what you need to do to like make sure to keep him off your back, not in trouble with him. So you do it, but you're not interested in anything more than just what you're required of. Your question isn't about what God loves and values and wants to see happen in the world. But the question is, what do I have to do to just kind of get God good with me? 
Or I think this is like someone that's maybe decided that what God requires of us in our sexuality is that we just maybe don't have sex before marriage. Like that's, that's in the Bible, and so maybe you draw that line in the sand, and, and you're like, I'm not going to cross this. But you're like, I'll, I'll dance around it. Like I'll do everything, you know, except that with my significant other. And maybe you pull your phone out at night, and you, you know, you spend half an hour watching porn before you fall asleep. And so, like, instead of asking, like, man, what would a life of holiness and intentional purity and devotion look like? You just want to know, like, what are, like, the really defined lines that I can't cross or else God's going to be mad? What do I need to give God in this area of my life? And I'm going to do that, but I'm really not going to do much more. And that's this servant. It's exactly what he does. He just says, tell me what I need to do for us to be good, and I'm going to do that. He doesn't take any risks for the sake of his master. He's not even concerned with, like, what the master would want him to do with this stuff. He's just like, I just want to give it back. (laughs) I don't even want it. Like, I just want to give it back to you in a way that, like, I can wash my hands of this. And so he buries the money. And listen, his goal, make no mistake, his goal is actually to repay the master exactly what he's been given. He actually wants to do that. He wants to be able to say, here you go, God. I have repaid you exactly what I was given. Not more, not less. There you go. We are even. I owe you nothing. We are good. That's what he wants to do. And you might be in this room and you're like hearing the story and you're like, wait a minute. This is like a weird kind of jacked up story, right? Because it's like, Everyone else got like, one guy got two talents, one guy got one, and then there's like this one dude who only gets one, and it's like, that's like, that's kind of messed up. Like, maybe they could be more risky because they had more privilege in life, right? But one talent, so I didn't know this when I was first reading this story, one talent is 20 years wages. (laughs) It's like an unbelievable amount of money. Like, it's like a, a world-changing, life-changing amount of money. It's like the, it's the amount of money that you go on, like, game shows for, and it's like, you're going to win a million dollars. Like, it's a huge amount of money. What does that mean? Well, it means that God does give people different gifts and abilities. Like, that's just true. Like, God does not give everyone the same thing, but the one thing God doesn't give is cheap gifts. No matter who you are in this room and what you feel about yourself, what you feel about the life God's given you, he has put something in you that is valuable, so tremendously valuable and has the potential to impact the world for his kingdom. And there's going to be a day where he's going to come back and he's going to find out what you did with it. And you see, the problem with this servant isn't just that he didn't multiply the money, right? Because that's like on the surface, but the the story wants to go deeper than that. And it wants to kind of show us like why he didn't do that. And this is what he says. He says this, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow, gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid and I went and I hid your talent in the ground. Here you go. Have what is yours. You see, even though he's in the same receiving line as all the rest of the servants, and he gets a talent from the master, he actually has a completely different view of this master than the others do. Right? The others view the master as kind and generous. And when they come back, they talk about the talent that God gave them. They're like, God, you gave this to me. And, and I, I went out in the world, and I, look, I have, I have more. Like, it's just, there's this, like, deep relational thing 
as the first two talk about. But the last servant never talks like this. He says, I hid your money in the ground. Here, have what is yours. You see, they highlight his generosity towards them and the relationship they have. And they're delighted to be able to show God what they were able to do with what he gave them. But this other servant has the complete opposite view. He views the master not as generous, but as stingy, as someone who's actually like powerful and even oppressive, who's brutal and exacting, reaping where he doesn't even sow. And the Bible says that the lives that we live on the outside of us are really just like these windows into the deeper truths about us. And you see these two people, they're living very different lives, but they're really just reflections of the way they viewed the master. And what this story is meant to teach us is that while both groups of people have some idea of what the master is like, the first two actually know him, and the last one doesn't. This last one doesn't have a clue what the master's like. Not just he doesn't have a clue what the master's like, he actually has the exact opposite perspective of what he's like. And it's really interesting, the context of this story, right, it starts by saying, like, man, don't be concerned when the end's going to come, be concerned if you're ready. And then he gives these stories, he gives this story, and then the very next chapter starts like this. It says, when Jesus had finished saying all of these things to his disciples, right, giving us the story about people who view God wrongly and lived wrongly because of it. When Jesus had finished all these things, he said to his disciples, you know that after two days the Passover is coming and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. You see, Jesus is telling this story on his way to the cross, And what's amazing about this is like the Bible tells us that Jesus is like the image of God, the exact image of God, the exact imprint of his nature. He is God in the flesh. And so like the most accurate picture you could possibly have, like the the most perfect picture of what is God like? What's his character? Who is he? The Bible says that the best way you could possibly know that is to look at Jesus Christ. That's who God is. That's his heart. That's what he's like. And what's interesting is this description from this servant is an almost opposite description of Jesus Christ in every single way. It's the opposite. He says, I I know this master to be a hard man, right? Someone who's like hard to deal with, just like powerful, like a strong arm, like doesn't bend. But Jesus is gentle and lowly. He's humble. He's a friend of sinners. He's the opposite of this. And he says, man, I know that you are like this strong, powerful God, and, and you're like reaping where you didn't sow, gathering where you scattered no seed. It's like this picture of someone who uses their power and their authority to demand and take things they didn't earn. And what's interesting is that this is actually true of Jesus. He does take things he didn't earn. What he does is he takes our punishment for sin that he didn't earn. We earned that. He takes that so that he can give us his blessing and righteousness that he can't afford. He, he does actually kind of trade places with people and take things from others that don't belong to him, but it's our punishment. A.W. Tozer says this. He says, man, what comes into your mind when you think of God is the most important thing about you. It's the most important thing. Way more than what, you know, like what co-op you're going to have. Way more than what grade you're going to get on the quiz that you're like, I got to go home and study for. 
Because the most important thing about you is what comes into your mind when you think of God. So what do you think about? When you think of God, what image fills your head? What do you see? What even, like, what emotions start to, like, well up in you? Because there's probably some emotion. I remember reading this story when I was a freshman in college. And it's different when you just have a God who is demanding and a God who's like, hey, I'm going to tell you this story about being a good steward. And if you don't get this, like, you're out. But he ends the story by saying, oh, hey, yeah, by the way, I'm about to go and be crucified. So this, the whole story is so interesting because it's not just about people being good stewards, not good stewards who get accepted into the kingdom of heaven. Like, it's like a story that, like, every single person on planet Earth has actually been a horrible steward of their lives. There's no good stewards. And it's a story of how Jesus Christ came to rescue people who are bad stewards. And I remember reading this story when I was a freshman in college, and it's one of the things that actually ruined all the plans I had for my life, okay? So just fair warning, this story ruined my plans, maybe it'll ruin yours. But I came to college wanting money. That's what I wanted. I I mean, I didn't even like really know why I wanted it. I was just like, I don't know, like people say you should have it, so (laughs) I should get some money. Like, I liked things, I liked stuff, and I wanted to be successful, I wanted to be comfortable in life, and, and I essentially wanted for my life, when I was a freshman, what the world wanted for it. I just believed the world, the, the story the world told me. I believed that I was in control of my life. I believed that who I was and what I wanted was the most important thing about me, and I believed that it was within my power to have these things if I worked hard enough. And maybe you think that way about your life. But then I met Jesus, and he explained to me that the most important thing about me was actually that I had a master, and that my life wasn't my own, and that everything I had actually belonged to him. And what mattered wasn't whether I was living a true and authentic version of myself. It wasn't actually if I was living up to my own expectations and own dreams for my life, but actually what mattered was whether I was being faithful to him. And as I looked at my life, it became apparent immediately that I was not the first two people in that story. (laughs) Like, that was not me as a freshman at all. I was 18 years old. And at that point in my life, I had lived every single day of my entire life for myself. Every single day of my life was about me. My dreams, my desires, my sins, my selfishness. And I actually came to this pretty horrifying reality at the age of 18 was that I had only one life to live. One. And the Bible says it's like a vapor. It's like a mist. It's like here in a moment and gone the next. Like it's transient. My life was moving by so fast. And I came to this horrifying realization that I had already wasted 20% of it just gone forever like one-fifth over and I I couldn't get those years back like there's no do-overs they were gone they're in my past I can't go back there and change the hours that I spent wasting my time I can't change the hours I spent just playing video games and get really getting really good at like halo like that is 
it was so fun, but like it was such a waste of time. I, I can't go back and change like the hours that I spent looking at porn. I, I can't go back, like spend these hours of time. I tried to figure out how do I get popular and kind of be this person in this in-group. I can't go back and change the way I lived without meaning or purpose, doing nothing that had any value to the kingdom of God. And as I was looking at the plans that I had for the rest of my life, because I still had four-fifths left. I came to like an even more terrifying conclusion. It was like the plans that I had, because I had a lot of plans, specific plans. I was planning to waste the rest of it. And when I met Jesus, the plans for my life felt so small. And so pathetic. It's like my career, my travel plans, like they were all about me. They had nothing to do with Jesus, nothing to do with God, nothing to do with his kingdom. And as I was a freshman in college and I was looking over the plans that I had for my life, I remember hearing this, this story, and it's a story I'll never forget. It was in a book by a pastor named John Piper, and he's recounting the story of his father uh, sharing the gospel with this guy. And his dad was like an evangelist and like he basically would just go, he's kind of like a revivalist and he'd go around to like different churches I and mean, just in like small towns around and he would just go and he would like preach the gospel. And so he'd go and he'd have these conversations and he'd share the gospel and there's this one church that he said he'd been going to this church for like years and years. And he'd go and he'd bring the message of Jesus to this church and he'd just have this little kind of like gospel presentation. And there was this one old guy who sat in the back for years. And the whole kind of community was a small town. The whole community had been praying for this guy. He's just living this kind of like kind of godless life. He's kind of coming to church, but like he didn't get it. He wasn't living his life for God. And they're just praying for him. And they're praying for him. And then this one night, eventually this old guy, he's like late in his 80s, resistant to God. He is there. He hears the message of Jesus and something clicks. He just gets it, and he comes down to the front at the end for the altar call. He understands the gospel. He receives salvation, and he's down at the front, and he's crying these, like, tears of joy, and as he recounts in this book, he says that these tears of joy that first started with kind of, like, this soft joy eventually turned into this, like, uncontrollable sobbing. And these tears of joy turned into these tears of, like, tremendous sadness, because in this moment, this man is like for the first time in his life realizing how amazing and tremendously beautiful the grace of God is. And he's finally realizing and understanding what the purpose of his life is. And he had almost none of it left. And so this dude who just got saved by Jesus finally gets it. He's at the front and he's falling down on his face in a pile of his tears. And it says that over the entire crowd, you can just hear him crying out, I've wasted it, I've wasted it, I've wasted it. And he's overwhelmed. Because the loss of that, realizing that he had one life to live and he had already wasted all of it. It was a loss that was incomparable to any loss he'd ever experienced in his life. And this is what John Piper says. He says, this was the story that gripped me more than any of the stories of young people who died in car wrecks before they were saved. It is this story of an old man weeping that he had wasted his life. 
In those early years, God awakened in me a fear and a passion not to waste my life. The thought of coming to my old age and saying through tears, I've wasted it, I've wasted it, was a fearful and horrible thought to me. You see, what happened in this man was that he met Christ. And he didn't meet Christ abstractly, but he met him personally. He met the God who actually loved him so much that despite his wasted life, despite his sin, despite how he had lived for all these years, this was the God who loved him as he was enough to die on a cross for him. That Jesus Christ, the Lord of the world, chose to get up on a cross and sacrifice himself for this man to take his judgment he deserved on his shoulders that he could give this man grace. That this was a God who wasn't casting aside, wasn't casting him aside for the life he'd lived, but he was actually casting aside his own life. He could give him his. We could welcome him into his kingdom, into his family, into his closest circle of friends. And when this man finally understood this, when he finally understood that this is what God's actually like, This is how God felt about him, that he wasn't demanding and cruel and harsh, but that he was actually kind and gracious and generous and self-sacrificing. When he finally understood the grace of God for him, the only thing he wanted to do was live his entire life for Jesus, to give him everything, to lay it all down at his feet. And he wept because he had so little of it left to give. Listen, you will never regret the things you do for Jesus. You never will. You might do some crazy, risky, uncomfortable things. You might do some really hard things that cost you a lot. But you will never regret the things you do for Jesus. But you might regret the things you don't do for him. Some of you, you're in the room and you're, you're, you're this kind of person that's looking for the requirements of God, right? And like a lot of people come to church for that. They're like, I just, I gotta know, like what, he's powerful, he can send me to hell, I don't know, like what, do, what does he want from me? Just tell me what I have to do. But what's interesting is when we come to God looking to him to tell us what we owe him as servants, we're met by a man who looks like a lamb that was slain, right? It's that Jesus at the end of the story of the Bible, Revelation 5 and 7, this is this lamb who was slain. This is when we come to God and we say, Jesus, what do you want us to to do? What do we need to do? What are the requirements of us? Like, we don't want to get on your bad side. When we come to him asking this question, we actually come face to face with this man who looks like a lamb who was slain. And when you stand before your master and your king on that final day, you're going to be standing before the man who was crucified. And the conversation of your life changes in front of this man. It totally changes the kind of questions you're asking. Because in the scars and wounds of the crucified and resurrected body of Jesus, you see a crystal clear picture of exactly what Jesus requires of you. When you look at his body, you see exactly what God requires of you, and the answer is nothing. 
all that was required of you was paid for by him. And when you come to God, you don't get requirements. You don't get laws that you have to follow or you're just going to be mad. You get grace. And what's so interesting about this story is a lot of people think that if you view God as like demanding and harsh and critical and kind of like he's just a hard person to please. Like if you have that view of God, then you're going to be this person that lives this radically sacrificial life for him who just like goes the distance for him because you want to make, you don't want to get on his bad side. But who in the story are the people that actually do the most for Jesus? It's the people who know he's kind. It's the people who know there are no requirements of them to use this talent anyway. That all the requirements were paid for by Jesus and all they get is grace. It's actually those kind of people who've met that kindness in the face of Jesus. Those are the only kind of people that actually have the power inside them to actually live the lives that Jesus is calling us to live. And so if you hear this parable and you're like, oh my gosh, my life's not like that. I have to become this kind of person. If you go out and you just grit your teeth and you go, I'm going to try to live for Jesus. I'm going to try to do things for him. I want to make God proud. I got to do it. I got to do it. I don't want him to be unhappy. If you do that, you will get nowhere. But if you look at your life and you're like, I have literally wasted 18, 19, 20 years of my life. And the plans I have for my life are horrible. And you bring that to Jesus and you say, Jesus, would you do something with this? Would you, would you give me kindness and grace? He will. And when you experience that kind of grace, that is what will make you into the kind of servant who's faithful. That is what is going to actually change your heart to be the kind of person that actually goes out into the world and lives for him. Let's pray. Jesus, you came from heaven to earth and you came to tell us this story, at least in part. And the reason is so that it would lead us to you, God, so that we would be the kind of people who would not have a wrong view of God, that we would not have a view of God that is demanding and harsh and hard and unjust, but we would have a view of God where you are kind and gracious and wonderful and merciful and that we would meet you face to face and it would just change our lives. God, I pray for the, the people in this room that are exactly like I was when I was a freshman who have wasted already a fifth of their life and have plans to waste the rest of it. Jesus, please don't let us be people that in our 60s or 70s or 80s look back on our life and feel like we've wasted it. Please help us know now what you want us to do with our lives. Please give us a vision for our lives that will actually last for eternity that's not just for ourselves, it's for you. And God, we just want to be, we want to be people that live for you. We want to be people that make a difference with our lives. Jesus, I want that so bad. And I want that for everyone in the room. So would you please do it? And would you help us worship you tonight? In your name.